0: Today's show is brought to you by AT&T Business. From advanced cybersecurity to the Internet of Things, AT&T gives you the flexibility to adapt to today's ever-changing business world. Learn more at att.com agility. Today's show is sponsored by Synchrony Financial. Ambition lives everywhere. Synchrony Financial has the payments, tools, and technologies, promotional financing, and retail insights to help you achieve whatever you're working on. Learn more at synchronyfinancial.com. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today we're going to play an interview I did at the 2017 Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas. I spoke to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times and the Washington Post, David Fahrenthold. They're two of the biggest stars among journalists in the Trump era. With Maggie reporting on the chaotic Trump White House and David investigating stories like Donald Trump's sometimes dubious charity donations. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode and host of the Recode Decode podcast. We're podcasting live from Austin, Texas at the Texas Tribune Festival, and we're on stage with an audience. And we're here with Maggie Haberman of the New York Times and David Farrenhold from the Washington Post, both of whom are incredible journalists. And I'm a bit of a fangirl, tiny. But not that much. Um, so, I have a lot of tough questions for you. And we're going to talk about everything from the White House to how you guys started to where you think things are going uh, right now. So, you're sitting up so straight, Maggie. It looks, I have to. You do. Otherwise okay. gonna, All right. Your posture gonna, is excellent. I'm going to list
1: if I don't. Yeah.
0: So. All right. Uh, so, let's begin. Let's start with you, Maggie. I, I love to, when I interview most people, I ask where, where, how they got to where they got. So, why don't each of you, first Maggie and then David, sort of briefly talk about how you got to the situation you find yourselves in right now.
1: <laughs> sure. Um, do you mean starting from how I got into journalism, or do you yes, you mean, I
0: don't want birth unless you have just, 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 just some, question unless um, you have some moment in your youth that was pivotal. Or so some, many. Some prompt we'll stories.
1: Um, I'm going to do that on, my, on a on a panel with my father later. Okay. Um, the uh, later on this morning, I started at the New York Post uh, in 1996 as a copy kid. I couldn't get a job at a magazine, which is where I wanted to work. I was at Sarah Lawrence and. Um, uh, no one would hire me, so I got a job for, I think it was something like $8 an hour mm-hmm. um, as a as a clerk. And I remember the first day thinking, like, I, this is this is a very, very strange place to work. And after about a day, just the rhythm of the newsroom completely uh, bit me. I loved it. it was, and this was it, it, at? At the New York Post. At the New York um, Post.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did you like about the New York Post?
1: The New York Press in the 1990s was a pretty amazing place to work because yeah. it had just been it had just been uh, taken over again by Rupert Murdoch, uh, who did and does love the paper. I mean, for for all of the criticisms of him, uh, he could still walk into the newsroom and lay the paper out, which most newspaper publishers and owners these days can't do. Um, and it was just it it was completely it was like you were plugging your fingers into some kind of matrix of the city. It was just constantly alive. Yeah. And. Uh, I went from there, I covered City Hall, I covered um, Rudy Giuliani's final term, I covered Mike Bloomberg's campaign, which felt similar to me to this year, because I was um, I was very angry when I was assigned to cover Bloomberg's campaign, because he was the loser who had no chance of winning, he was the right. laugher candidate, and then he became the mayor. Um, in I ended up at the Daily News, back at the Post, went to Politico, I covered in 2011 Donald Trump's uh, flirtation with running for president. And I had dealt with him at the post, because um, at the tabloids, he was just omnipresent, and he was yeah. constantly calling page six the gossip page, um, very often as a, as a source close to Trump. Um, yeah. And... Uh, sources
0: close to the situation. So
1: close to the situation, he had very similar hair to yes. Donald Trump. Yeah. Or you'd say, one time I did,
0: <laughs> sources close to the situation, if they were any closer, they'd be on the other side there of him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, and so in 2015, I joined the Times for a sort of um, unclear assignment. Uh, I just was joining the team. I had been covering Clinton Can, for can, I, can I stop you? Sure. You were at Politico, though. I was. I was. And
0: you, that, that's considered a blog or something like Recode or something like that. Why did you go there from the Daily News?
1: Well, I went there actually from the Post. Um, I went back to the I was not happy at the Daily News. Uh, I went back to the Post. That, that It just was a better fit for me. And I went to Politico from the Post because... It was a different job. It was national. And The Post had, you know, the tabloids in New York City have a have an uncertain future. Now, they have had this uncertain future for a very long time. Um, and they are doing better than newspapers in some other major cities, uh, mm-hmm. just because of the unique uh, nature of the New York City media market. But it was just a chance to make a jump. And so I made the jump. And I also didn't really have a clear role there. But I ended up covering 2012 with my colleague Alex Burns, who's now at The Times with me, who is one of my closest collaborators. Um, But in 2015, when I went to the Times, Alex went to the Times the same year, uh, he was on Metro, it wasn't really clear what I was going to be doing, and I was looking for a lane. So I picked up Trump, because nobody seemed very interested in Trump, and I knew him and I knew his people. How well did you
0: know him? You knew him from just... I mean,
1: you know... I knew him from covering New York City. I knew him, for, And I knew him from 2011, which is where I really developed a relationship with him. Um, and where I discovered, you know, the sort of like number one rule about him is that in his brain, two things are true. No one speaks for him except him, even if he actually has a spokesman who's calling you saying, I'm his spokesperson. And he believes that um, facts can be changed so that they are something other than maybe what you thought they were a day ago. So the for instance to that was that I did this interview with Roger Stone in 2011, who's Trump's longest serving inside-outside advisor. He has always had one foot you know, sort of on the outside, I think recognizing, frankly, you survive longer that way with Trump. But I did this whole interview with him, and it was all about Trump. It was all about how Trump would run. It really wasn't about Roger. And Trump called me the next day and said, Roger Stone doesn't speak for me. And Stone was in all the meetings at this point. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I knew this directly. And it was it was an education, and it was an education I shouldn't have needed. But as with a lot of this, you know, until you experience it directly, you don't really understand how right. unusual it is. Anyway, so when I thought what was going to happen was that Clinton was going to win, um, I wasn't certain of it. I was reminded uh, by a friend that I had said at a barbecue where I had bumped into her in May of 2016... That I thought Trump might win, um, just based on how things were going at that point. But I still thought Clinton was the likely winner. I would go back and do whatever. I wasn't going to cover the White House, um, and I would see my children. And um, that is not what happened. That is not what happened. All right.
0: (laughs) But it's interesting, you did start off in a a, a copy desk. I started off in the mail room at the Washington Post. Uh, Did you really? Yes, I did. I delivered mail for people who later worked for me, which was always an interesting. (laughs) Um, What was interesting about it is really big jerks are mean to copy people, or mm-hmm. you, you're, mm-hmm. or lesser people, and very talented people are not. Like, it was really fast except for one, and I'm not going to name him, but you can guess. <laughs> we'll, um, th- we'll think about it. So, Dave, let's talk about your background. You had started where?
2: The Post. I, I started at The Post as an intern in 2000, right after I got out of college. I and, was an
0: intern, too. Yeah,
2: and basically came in at just the right time. We were making money hand over fist from the print paper back then, and I've stayed... Through all the sort of tumult, uh, I was always sort of too young and cheap to get rid of when everybody else was getting buyouts, (laughs) and it lasted long enough to have seen the light on the other side.
0: And you had, you had come in for, just from college, on the college?
2: Mm-hmm. the college okay. summer intern. And where did you
0: start at the post?
2: I started on uh, night cops. So yeah. I worked for the Metro desk, and I'd come in at 7 p.m. and work till 2 a.m. and j- basically just cover homicides, car accidents, things like that.
0: And then a- a- as an intern, you did mm-hmm. that also. And then you were hired from the intern program yeah. into the Metro section. So
2: then it was a two-year intern doing the same thing. And uh, the only way I got off night cops uh, it's a a job you guys probably know this I I did it the editors that decide to take you off night cops work during the day and don't ever see you except if if you screw up if you do a good job they don't really pay attention to you Uh, (laughs) and so the only way I was able to get off night cops was just luck that there was someone at the paper that they wanted to quit and they wanted to give her the worst job at the newspaper so she would quit and that was my job so they had to get me out of it Uh, (laughs) so that's how I ended up working during the the day I could still be there at night if that stroke of good luck and bad luck had not happened
0: yeah and so you, so you moved where from there inside the post? Uh,
2: so I covered uh, the police during the day, like the police chief, and then I've done all kinds of things. The environment. I was the New England bureau chief for a year, and I've been on politics since about 2010.
0: 2010. So what moved you to politics?
2: I was covering the environment and had for a long time and felt like um, I had, in 2010, there'd been a giant coal mine explosion in West Virginia that I'd spent a lot of time covering and there had been the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill that I'd spent a lot of time on. And it felt like the environment beat was kind of at the middle of everything that year in a way that it would not be again. Um, And so they offered me a chance to go cover politics. And at the time, the post was sort of shrinking. We We were unsure about our future, but it seemed like the thing that we were gonna do, the last thing we were gonna do, uh, was politics. And so if you wanted a future at the Post, if you wanted to be the place where we thought was the middle of our, our mandate, that was politics. So I, th- I said yes and moved over. I first covered Congress and then um, covered like government waste, other presidential campaigns, all kinds of things within politics.
0: And how did you move into what you're doing? So, Because what you're doing is really wonkish, really. <laughs> it's, a, it's more into the data journalism, the idea that you actually do... It's not quite what Maggie does in the same way,
2: but... Well, you, I mean... It, it kind of was by accident. I had done these stories about government waste. spent a right. couple of years writing about government waste. And so much of that Like, was, say,
0: price at HHS, for example. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I I I never, mention it that? was I'm never that ask obvious. ask you about that later.
2: Okay. I, the Politico stories about price at HHS have been amazing. But things like uh, I wrote a long story about the National Raisin Reserve, um, which you didn't know we had a national. We do have a national strategic raisin reserve. Okay. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> you need jun- raisins. Raisins, yeah. yeah. It's, okay. It was an amazing story. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. Then uh, like a giant underground cavern under Pennsylvania where the government keeps 28,000 file cabinets full of personnel records. Mm-hmm. Um, things where I'm writing about an agency doing something stupid, and they're hostile to me and don't want to help me. And so I got practice sort of building a, ca- building a story around the outside. So like mm-hmm. the underground mine of Pennsylvania, the, go- the people who run that wasteful thing don't want to talk about it, don't want right. to let me in. Right. So then I had to go find all the people who used to work there and their friends build the story without the cooperation, and then come back to the agency and say, look, I know everything about your weird mind
0: mm-hmm. now.
2: I'm going to write about it. You can be in the story or out of the story. Right. So that actually turned out to be helpful covering Trump because his, his reaction a lot of these things was to say... No, I won't tell you, you know, the only person who knows the facts about me is me. Mm-hmm. And if I don't want to cooperate, then I won't, you're screwed. Right. Uh, and for me, it was a, that was good preparation to say, in, you know, there is a way to build, to tell the truth about you without you. It's just a lot more work. Mm-hmm. So I've I covered the presidential campaign in 2015. But in 2015, I really wanted to cover candidates you could get close to, people you could really see up close. I didn't want to be in a big, you know, like covering Hillary Clinton where there's a you know crowd of 200 reporters. Right. Which means I basically I covered losers. I covered, like, Bobby Jindal, mm-hmm. uh, Rick Perry. I, Rick Perry actually flew to, wrote a profile about him. I flew to Missouri to see him give a speech, and he dropped out in the middle of the speech that I saw him. Oh, okay. Him give. <laughs> <Could> so <be. laughs> the Rick Santorum, I saw him Did you
0: know around. this, or just like, oh, shit?
2: Yeah, no, in the middle of the speech... I'm like writing it down, trying to think about what this means for his political future. And then people, <laughs> other reporters have been given the advanced copy of the yeah. speech and are scrolling down. And you, you can hear them be like, oh, no, he's <laughs> dropping out. On page seven, he drops out. <laughs> so anyway, that was... that was, You didn't scroll down, right? No, no, I did not scroll down. I was I was really looking at him, trying to understand this Doing real theme. time. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, I, Rick Santorum, I, I toured... Uh, places in Iowa, with Rick Santorum last year, where he'd go to meet a crowd of like two people, Yeah, one of whom didn't know he was coming and was just there eating ice cream when <laughs> Rick Santorum showed up. Uh, so all my candidates had, were basically kaput by yeah. the time that Iowa caucuses came around. Everybody had profiled was gone. Uh, right. And so they said, well, all right, we have Trump reporters. What did
0: you lo- I'm just curious what you learned from that. From- well,
2: uh, there's two lessons. One, if you're gonna write a profile, this is particularly a Bobby Jindal lesson, if you're gonna write a profile of someone, a political candidate, you should look beforehand at the polling to see where that person is, mm-hmm. and if next to their name in the polls is like not even a number, just like an asterisk or like okay. NA, you okay. should not write a profile of that person. All right, okay. Um, but I did. I, I like those stories in that you were trying to find different ways of telling a political profile story
0: and trying to find meaning in these people.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah so you get to know them and like try to communicate that to people, but also to try to find a candidate that people think they're bored by or not interested in. One of my favorite stories about that was Mike Huckabee, right? Mike Huckabee briefly had a time running as a 2016 candidate. How do you profile Mike Huckabee?
0: Well, he is amusing, if not appalling, but go ahead, move on.
2: So we just, I read all of his books and read a lot of interviews, and the whole profile was just a list of things that Mike Huckabee had condemned as immoral over his life. Mm -hmm. It was like 180 things. That's all, wow. you, You could see over his life I see. Remember, he was the skinny governor for a while, sort of a progressive uh, Republican governor of Arkansas, and then he was, like, fat and conservative again. Right. His weight
0: was when he... His political leanings were depending on his weight. Right. And the
2: the things that he condemned changed over time like there was a time when he was condemning grits and gravy grits and gravy is bad you gotta eat vegetables you know america should be healthy and then once he became this sort of like screw you michelle obama i'm going to eat grits and gravy candidate three years later he was like i hate people who tell me i can't eat grits and gravy right right Uh, right. so just like trying to find a way to tell a story of mike huckabee just in the timeline of things that he was condemning um that those people were while great experiences covering them nobody read those stories and so I got basically put on the Trump story as a one-day thing. In February, on caucus day, they said, look, here's a guy, uh, Donald Trump, he's been on, married three times, he's been on the cover of Playboy twice, he's about to win Mike Huckabee's Iowa, we thought. He, in the end, he didn't win. Um, but Rick Santorum's Iowa. Go there with him on caucus day and just sort of watch what he does, how he interacts with voters. And that's when I saw him do this weird thing where he gave a big check to uh, this, he stopped his rally and gave a big check from his foundation to Was somebody. it. Was
0: big one of those big checks? It was too? literally
2: a lo- it was large check. 000. It was like a golf tournament sized check. Uh, right. so you could see it from the back of the room. And it made me say, like, well, what the heck he doing? Like, can you give away checks from your foundation in the middle of a political event? No. Actually, no, you can't. Um, but also, <laughs> where's the rest of the money? You know, he said he'd raised $6 million. I saw him give away a little bit of it. I'll just call the Trump campaign and say, hey, where's, you know, he raised $6 million for veterans. Who'd he give the rest of it to? And I thought that would be like a two or three day story, write that, move on to something else. And it said it was like, because they wouldn't tell me, it became something that lasted for months and months and months.
0: This episode of Recode Decode is brought to you by at and Business. Whether it's helping to protect your data, empowering your people, or making faster, more informed decisions, at and has the network, solutions, and people to make it happen. Discover the power of AT&T at and at att.com agility. Today's show is brought to you by Synchrony Financial. Ambition lives everywhere. At Synchrony Financial, they believe your ambition isn't something you just look forward to, it's what you work forward to. That's why they partner with businesses to help provide payment tools and technologies, promotional financing, and retail insights. Every day at more than 350,000 partner locations, they help people and businesses fulfill their unique ambitions, big and small, for themselves and their communities. Because at the end of the day, when customers succeed, businesses succeed. And when we all work together, we can achieve more than we can alone. The only question is, what are you working forward to? Learn more at SynchronyFinancial.com. So essentially, both of you just uh, fell into this, like by accident, and yeah. because yes. you were losers, essentially. We were. <laughs>
1: yep. We were. Like, pretty <laughs> much. True. so Thanks for having us. No problem.
0: <laughs> um, now you're the most important reporters in the world. For now, um, so you essentially fell into this. When was when did the penny drop that maybe you were onto something here? Now let's start with you, Maggie. You you've been covering this. I, I'm in huge admiration because you cover it doggedly, like a beat report. It's like a you're like a true beat reporter in terms of how much you covered. I, at one point, you had like nine bylines in the in, in the New York Times one evening, and I was like. How does she do that? What is going on? But you co- how do you look at how you cover it when it started to become clear that this might be something?
1: Well, so, uh, so I take that as two separate questions. I mean, one is, in terms of when it became clear that this might be something, um, it was after the Paris terrorist attacks in 2015 in November um, when his numbers didn't dip. He, he said all kinds of intemperate things. That was actually when he made his big Muslim ban pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever he focuses on DACA, or the border wall, and the border wall is a little different, but uh, the the big belief among some of his critics is that those are the issues that were real drivers in the primary campaign. Actually, his, his Muslim attacks were the ones that were real drivers. I mean, because if you look at the arc of this election, and I think about this a lot, especially because one of the things that I covered in New York City at the Post, and then at the Daily News, was the 9-11 attacks, because I was mm-hmm. down there, and then rebuilding for three years. So, if you look at the arc of this election, it has a lot of connectivity to what happened that day and then Mm -hmm. the aftermath and the country going a little crazy um, afterwards. But it was it was in in that month when nothing changed. I mean his ceiling, I mean his floor rather was so hard. Um, And and nothing was changing in the primary. There were 17 candidates almost the entire time. I think that there were 16 eventually, I guess it was Perry who dropped out first, right? Right. Um, So then there were 16, but the game theory that was supposed to take place where this one was going to get this person's 3% and then this was going to happen, none of that ever happened. So he was just able to kind of keep going. And I did this story with uh, my colleague Tom Kaplan about evangelical, self-described evangelical voters who were backing Trump. The reasons that they gave, we spoke to a bunch of people who had been part of a Times poll who described themselves as evangelicals, and the reasons that a lot of them gave for why they were with Trump were so clear that A lot of issues that we think of as typical drivers, especially in a Republican primary, social issues. I mean, realistically, these had not been big drivers for the last two cycles. But people were so pissed off about Obamacare. I mean, the thing I kept hearing over and over again every time I called someone was, "My son's premiums went up to fourteen hundred dollars a month. He can't afford this." To Obamacare, because of the Affordable Care Act, and um, you know, or things just have to change. And I hate Hillary. And these were basically the the two reasons. So it was clear that something was going on. And then your, your question about covering it as a beat reporter, I was trained um, by this guy, Greg Birnbaum, who is now at NBC. He was my editor uh, for a really long time. He was my editor at The Post, and then he was my editor again at Politico. And his whole thing is just don't get beat, don't get beat, don't get beat. Right. And so like, I literally look at everything as like tiny little increments. And I do have this problem sometimes where I have to, trouble stepping back and seeing how everything knits into a bigger picture because i cover everything like i'm like i am on like some kind of cops and crime beat where it's like donald trump said today police said um (laughs) right but that is basically my approach because he also he says so much that like and especially in the campaign that was one of his tricks was that he would say seven different things and people would either hear what they wanted to hear or nothing specifically would stick whereas with hillary clinton you know the emails were basically like the one thing that everybody remembered or would hear that is still how I cover him, but it's much harder to do that with a White House beat. It's just different,
0: right? And so you do it. The reason I get to it is eventually talk about the incrementalism of how it's covered. So it never, you never see the larger picture that everyone gets on that uh, that wheel. Essentially,
1: that's well. That's part of why my 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 frequent collaborator Glenn Thrush is a lot. Um, better at that than I am so he often pulls me off the wheel and you know parks me nicely on a piece of newspaper and lets me roam around and nibble on some food i do force myself to take breaks and sit back and kind of look at the pattern of what i'm what i'm looking at or look back and say how does this relate to something he did in the campaign mm-hmm. um, you know even something simple like i did a story a couple weeks ago about his opioids commission and their first report they did this report and he announced a national emergency but not really, because the government hasn't actually declared a national emergency on this. Right. And so, but that just disappeared under a wave of you know, North Korea and you know a million other tweets. Well, and well so. I want
0: to get to that idea of, of the exhaustion level, sure. that, that you must be exhausted, and we're all exhausted because of you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You could uh, all be sleeping, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but you have had a different approach. You, you focused in on Charlie. You have a book about this now. Wh- why did you then focus so intently on this? What did you think it meant?
2: Well, uh, first of all, I could focus... Explain
0: it. It, it. Explain it. He just doesn't give what he says he gives, right? Pretty much. Yeah.
2: I mean, we, the, the short version of what happened with his charity was that of his veterans' promise was it started out him saying I was gonna, he, was, he had gotten $6 million for veterans, of which $1 million was his own money, uh, and he was going to give it away. And I just wanted to find out if he'd done it. And Mm -hmm. he'd had, basically. Uh, It it took me forever to figure that out. Finally, uh, in May, I spent all this time sort of searching for evidence that anybody had gotten the money that Trump said he was going to give to veterans, specifically. And then Corey Lewandowski, who was Trump's campaign manager, now a Harvard fellow, uh, Mm -hmm. called and said, uh, I can tell you for sure, Donald Trump has given away his $1 million to veterans, but I can't tell you um, who got it or when or in what amount. It's all secret. It's all totally secret. And that's, you can't take that for an answer. I mean, we wrote a story saying that he right. said that. But you can't, tr- I mean, you can't trust anybody saying that. Uh, okay. So I went looking for proof, basically, that Trump had given this money away. And I was on Twitter basically saying, hey, has anybody gotten even $1 of this million dollars Trump says he just gave out of his own pocket to veterans? And I spent all day searching for it, couldn't find any evidence of it, and at the end thought the problem was me. Like, right. This was a stupid way <laughs> Which I think reporters do.
0: Which I think reporters yes, do a lot. True. They assume it's not their...
2: One of my problems as a reporter is that I'm basically an optimist. Mm-hmm. I basically, if people say they're going to do something, this is in spite of so many years of covering politics. If mm-hmm. people say they're going to do something, I believe them. That is right. shocking. I know. shocking. It's a handicap, and wow. it means that I'm constantly being surprised yeah. by things.
1: Maybe that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and so, in this case, like I thought, okay, well, maybe you know, probably did give this money away, and I've spent a day searching for it and I haven't found it. And what it turned out, so and I had been putting at real Donald Trump and all of the, my tweets, looking for this money in the hopes right. that he would see it. Uh, and the reason I couldn't find it was because it didn't exist. He right. had not given the money. Uh, only after I made this big show of looking for it did Trump actually. Which give the you money did. Away.
0: You used Twitter to do that, yeah. and you, you you took pictures of your notes. You did all kinds of things, which I thought was rather clever. It's nope. a really inter- It's yeah. also you're sort of giving away the story.
2: That was, well, that was sort of the beginning of it. When that worked, right, Trump saw what I was doing and then actually gave the money away. Uh-huh. Right. Um, that was two things. One, uh, we, the editors realized that this was interesting. Like, there was this big, he gave this big press conference at Trump Tower where he excoriated the media, media for, like, making him live up to this promise he'd given on television. And, all, and so the editors said, wow, look, if he's willing to do that, you know, trying to weasel out of a commitment to veterans—you know, our most revered group in our society and then under the brightest spotlight we have, which is a presidential campaign. What was he doing before? You know, how, what was he, when he? Was he promising money to charity before and not giving it? So, they said, okay, make that—you know—sort of a focus. And it, you know, it, it, one of the things that's so important about Trump covering him, and I know Maggie knows this too, is that he spends so much time constructing a facade yes. about who he is and what he does, Great. and. What matters to him and then makes it so hard to figure out the substance of what he lives, you know, to to what he's actually doing. And so in this case, Trump had for many years understood that to play the role of like Bruce Wayne, basically like millionaire playboy kind Mm -hmm. of figure, you had to be uh, generous and generous in kind of extravagant ways. And so he'd been promising to give money to all these different people, uh, but in private he had been doing as much as he could to avoid giving anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't feel the moral yep. compunction that he that he showed the world that he felt he didn't really feel. So that that was it. That was some, an interesting. Line of coverage, I thought, an important thing to say about him. But I could only do that because we had people, other people at the post who were doing what Maggie was doing, and you know, following Trump around, writing stories about the campaign. I mean, mm-hmm. I could only do it because there was we had a big enough staff to do everything.
0: And what did you think that represented? And Maggie. I'd love your thoughts on this. What do you think it represented of him doing that? Because you picked one thing, which I think is very indicative of everything else, right. pretty much. Yeah.
2: I, I, to me, it was really, he clearly had thought it was important, an important thing to say about himself that he was generous, that he was going to give money to people. Because he would often say, like at Howard Stern, oh, yeah, celebrity apprentice, yeah, I'm going to give all the money for charity. I think there, there's two sides of Trump's character, at least his pre presidential character. One was, I'm the richest man you could possibly imagine. I live the life of Scrooge McDuck, basically. Uh, I have so much more money than you could, than I... It's like the first I line... I swim in it. Yeah, the first line of The Art of the Deal in 1987 was, I have so much money, I don't need any more, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I'm so rich that I couldn't use any more money. That's one side of the personality, the image. The other side was... Mm-hmm. I need your money. Give me money for Trump Stakes, Trump Water, Trump University. He was always hustling to get you to give him your money. Mm-hmm. And so how do you square that? A guy who want, doesn't need more money but is like desperate to get you to send him cash. The way he would always do it was charity. Well, it's, This is for charity. Trump University its all for charity. You know, that's, it's not for me because I have more money than I could ever need. It, it was important to me to see, you know, he wanted people to believe that about him so much what was he doing in private to live up to it? You know, in the privacy of his own home, in the quiet of his own mind, what did this? Did other people really matter to him? And if so, how? You know, what causes had he chosen? And it, it seemed like the in result of all of it was, the cause was himself. You know, he did have a charity, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, which gave some money away, but almost always All to people that, yeah, people that had invited him to a party, had, in, had given him an award, places where it, it was socially unacceptable in this particular interaction not to have some kind of div- charity, the charitable donation. And so this was his way of meeting that minimum. But there's no greater cause. The cause was always so, him. So,
0: Maggie, what did you... I mean, was this just... Because this seems to be the pattern, correct, on everything?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I think that... I agree completely with your point that... Uh, what David did was pick and we all commented on this at the times and I give David an enormous credit for this because he picked a lane right. and he just focused on right. that lane as opposed to the rest of us who were constantly chasing the golf ball across the course right, which, um, I think which was the, I, think, which it, I think is the point it is, is right I mean especially with Trump because so much of it is whacking a golf club intention uh, a golf ball intentionally across the field to get you to chase it when I was listening to David talk I was thinking about This is where, in some ways, those of us who had covered Trump for a really long time were actually at a disadvantage Mm -hmm. um, in this campaign because the five borough view in New York City of Trump is so unbelievably different than the national view of Trump. The national view of Trump was formed over 14 years of The Apprentice. And so I was amazed when I would go to Iowa and people would describe him as if he was like Thomas Edison. They'd be like, you know what, he's this innovator, he formed this huge business, he's decisive, he makes decisions and it's like he fired Gary Busey and that's what they're talking about. (laughs) Um, In New York City, he was known as a hustler. He was known as somebody who left other people with the bills, uh, who didn't pay his bills. He was known as somebody who was constantly promising to give money, but it was always living on other people's money. He has this friend, um, Stuart Rahr, who actually was very infrequently talked about in this campaign, I think by his own design. But Rahr is this party boy who was a, a Page Six fixture who was constantly funding Trump's, um, you know, fun or charities, or Trump would promise a donation to something, and it was actually Rar who would give it. And I had a friend um, in New York politics who called me in around October and of 2015 and was like, "You need to sort of be focusing on this," and we never really did, and we never really did anywhere near as well as David did. Um, and with the sort of part of part of what the brilliance of what David did is that with Trump it's not really enough to just write it once or twice you need to write it over and over and over and over again because this tidal wave of other stuff he puts out takes over with Trump to David's point about the, the causes himself you know this is a casino owner where the house always wins right mm-hmm. so he always wins one way or the other um, in his mind and it doesn't really matter what happens to the other person the whole reason that i his folks came to me in May of 2015 and said, Trump is going to declare on June uh, 16th and we want you to write it. And I said, no. And they said, why? And I said, because I'm not doing this again. I did this in 2011 and he didn't run and I'm not playing this game where he looks for free publicity again. He's going to actually have to run for me to do this. And I never thought he would because I didn't think he would file a financial disclosure form. Mm -hmm. Um, And he didn't. But go ahead. No, he did. Yeah, he did. He He didn't release his. Well, but we we have no way of knowing whether that's real and we haven't seen his tax returns which he repeatedly promised he would release, but then they were under audit and this and that. It is, as David said, it is always a mirage. But I was so used to... There was a side that was sort of like, well, everybody knows this, actually. Everybody doesn't know this. And that, I would say, was one of my biggest um, failings during the campaign.
0: So let's talk about now, covering things now. Now, David, you're going to continue... Have you continued with the charitable giving? Because you, you feel like this is the... <laughs>
2: Well, I don't that, know,
0: the the rosebud of the situation, I <laughs> guess. I don't know what else to think about
2: it. It's my gimmick now, I have to stick with it. Yeah, okay, all uh, right. But also I'm doing a lot of coverage of the Trump business, uh, business Trump organization, right. uh, just because I, it's a lot of the same sort of like techniques are useful in covering that, um, and also because I think that's an undercovered source of influence uh, on Trump, and um, totally like a way is it, you know, sort of from Trump's perspective positive and negative like there's a lot of people who are giving him business because he's the president and a lot of people are taking away business from him because he's the president but uh, not br- just
0: that the actual business that had existed for 20 years right, i think totally. very yeah. few reporters uh, have delved as, yeah. as deeply as they possibly could
2: well the, to me the really interesting thing now is that the people that Trump built his business on are the inverse america to the people that he ran on right mm-hmm. he, he ran on rural america exurbs you know, the middle of the country, uh, Rust Belt. His businesses, his his hotels and golf clubs, at least, are in blue America, right on the coast, wealthy enclaves, a lot of them, people very, very wealthy are, are members and a lot of them are very liberal. And so, he is now trying to sort of appeal to both those constituencies at once. I mean, one constituency is locked into membership fees in some cases, but like, He's running, to, to stoke his base, he ends up alienating the people who were his customer base for a long time. And I'm really interested in how those two sort of sides of his, you know, appeal uh, interact with each other. And whether, you know, in the end, which one matters to him more.
0: And the businesses themselves?
2: The businesses, I mean, golf clubs, I've learned a lot about Palm Beach uh, and mm-hmm. golf clubs and hotels Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, they make it, the Trump people make it extremely hard to figure out what's going on with their businesses. So we've done things like try to figure out all the people, the charities who rented out ballrooms and and hotel rooms, all the NBA teams that stay at his hotels, people that pay him a lot of money and have other choices. Because you think about his businesses, none of it's really necessary, right? Mm -hmm. He's not like he's selling auto parts, right? Mm -hmm. He's selling things that you could Go, you know, you could find another, ho- it's easy Correct. to replace or it's easy to just go without. You don't really need a golf club membership. And so it's those businesses, it makes it easy for customers to walk away and they may be doing that now. I think that's a really interesting part of the, what's changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's interesting for new people to come and try to, you know, all the new people who come to Trump Hotel are doing it often because they want something from his presidency.
0: And now under scrutiny, obviously, are some of his businesses international, with Russia particularly. Um, is that going to be a big focus? I mean, that's, ob- that's clearly a focus of. The Mueller investigation. Yes, it's not it my shouldn't. focus
2: really, but it's the focus of other people at the Post. We're really interested in the, the Trump Tower deal in Moscow or the proposal for a Trump Tower in Moscow. The New Yorker had the great story about Azerbaijan that yeah. t- ties to the Iranians through Azerbaijan. Right. That stuff is really uh, an important part of understanding his presidency. It's just not me particularly that does that. So
0: may let's talk about the exhaustion level because I think one of the things you talked about, you, he throws a golf ball and you all chase if he says something outrageous. I mean, it, one, during one week, I've forgotten the outrageous thing they said sure. Monday, and I feel sometimes like I can't take a shower because <laughs> if I get in the show, oh my God, what did he just do? And so it does create. We're kind of reporters are kind of on the on the wheel of him of, that he creates and, and does that. How do you, how is that is that changed or because it, it seems to never end? It's actually
1: gotten a little better. Look, I mean, he he creates chaos and then he responds to the chaos that he creates, and then we have to respond. You know, half not have to, but we end up covering both the creation and the response that he does. It's all some self-contained thing. It is all of a piece. Everything David's saying and everything I'm talking about is all about somebody creating his own world, Mm -hmm. um, which you really can't do when you are the president, because there are just objective facts, um, and everything cannot be wag the dog. Um, And so I think that one of the challenges for us is figuring out how to explain to people, and I was thinking about this again as David was talking, how to show people that the reality is different than what they are hearing and maybe even seeing. Um, And I think that in our coverage, I don't mean the Times, I mean just the broad spectrum of coverage, I think there is way too much telling about Trump and not enough showing. So the tone. explain that. Sure, I think the tone ends up being off, uh, oftentimes. I think that it is much more important for people to just... Because here's the thing, the damage of all of us saying he is going to lose and him winning... On media credibility was very real, and mm-hmm. so at a certain point, if the if the tone of coverage is all sort of endlessly shrill, that every rea- everything he does is treated as if it's worthy of the same reaction, it's just not. I'm sorry. Like some of these tweets do not need to be treated like other tweets. I don't think we can ignore his tweets. I never understood that. Well, they one. seem to be
0: presidential. Pronouncements. They're presidential statements. Why right.
1: would we not pay attention to what he says? Um, but it is, for the exhaustion factor, to take it back to what you were, you were asking, it is important to start kind of figuring out what the rhythms are. The problem, certainly at my paper, I think it's actually much less so at the Washington Post, is that the people who covered the campaign were just fundamentally different than the people who covered the White House. And so the Washington Post has a lot more people in their White House bureau who cover, covered the campaign. Uh, if you did not cover the campaign, you were at a severe disadvantage because you are, le- you were for the first six months because you were learning how strange this all is. I mean, I remember um, my colleague then, Ashley Parker, is now David's colleague, and I, she and I were the Trump, two main Trump reporters. We did a briefing for the DC bureau right after uh, the election just to tell them what to prepare for. And people thought I was kidding based on a lot of what, what I did you say?
0: Like, um, he cray like what did you do? I, no, not like that. <laughs> no, no, really, but they, you know, he cray. Well,
1: like. He will, he, will say, he will point to this table and say, it's a sofa. And, and you'll be sort of wanting to tear your hair out because if this is not a sofa, but you don't really know how to argue with someone saying that. And then you're um,
0: discussing sofas. Th- th-
1: right, and then you're just correct. Um, it, just sort of along those lines, um, how people in the campaign thought that their offices were bugged, uh, how you should always assume that your conversations are being taped, how um, you have to be careful what you say to him because he will take something you say and he will toss it back out publicly with a whole new patina where it's not quite what you said. And th- so we've seen this for two years where he'll be like, this person came to me and asked for my support. And I'll be like, that's not really what happened, but there's enough of a, ger- a, 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 of a, a, a kernel of truth that the person then un- ends up in this like weird you know, spider web of unable to get out of what he painted it as. Um, and I think that for people who didn't witness that firsthand, uh, and didn't just have a sense of who was trustworthy on the campaign or who was more more trustworthy than others. The one thing I will say that was unique about this campaign and that has been unique about this White House is I have never been lied to so frequently. Um, yeah. And I mean, and I have covered some uh, very difficult politicians. Um, <laughs> well, but,
0: come uh, over and cover Uber with me. This is similar <laughs> situation. Not now. This is, is now. right.
1: It's all changed. But yeah. this is a uh, so that the that is where I think a lot of the exhaustion comes in is you. You, there is, I think the word gaslighting has been rather overused, but I do think there is a degree to which you spend so much time trying to make sure that the ground beneath you is actually solid, um, that that is exhausting.
0: Alright, so getting to gaslighting what is your, I want to know what each of your relationships, do you have a strong relationship with Trump or not at all?
2: Uh, No, I I haven't talked to him since May of last year when he called me a nasty guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And he uh, told my editor at that point that he wasn't going to talk to me again. I've tried to talk to him a number of times since then, uh, but no. How
0: so? Just reaching out? I mean, yeah,
2: for every story, you know, we would, you know, on charities, on on Trump Organization, we would reach out to him. Occasionally you get some sort of spokesman to call you back, but I never got him again. And there was a time, obviously, before when he was really, really easy to get on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, one of the interesting things for me was to learning, talking about, like... Learning to deal with their, their right. press operation, there was one incident last year where I was writing a. St- I wrote a story about Trump's charitable giving, and uh, I, s- I sent them a bunch of questions. The Trump campaign a bunch of questions about it, and they didn't respond at all. The Story comes out; it says that they didn't respond to these queries. They then took the answers that they should have given to me that I had asked for and gave them to CNN, so CNN could have me on and sort of zats me with it and say like We found some problems with your story. The Trump campaign gave us this information, so. What I started doing after that was posting all my questions on Twitter. Like, you know, here are the questions I ask. Because, just because I think readers, when yeah. they see you say, yeah. the Trump campaign did not decline to comment. It looks comment. like you didn't do your job. Yeah. yeah they, they think that when, they, when you say, like, oh, they didn't comment... That they imagine a scene out of like the movies where they're like hauling the, you know, the, pre- the president by and you're like, do you have any comment? And they just no. don't say anything. But no, you sent them like a long, you gave them like lots of yep. ways to answer these questions. So that's been part of my response to that. They didn't do it to me again after that. Um, after you put it on it's Twitter. important. After I started showing on Twitter, like this is, this is what I asked for. They didn't respond.
0: Right. Um, I want to get to using that and, and also where the media is next, but what is your relationship with him? I suspect you talk to him a lot.
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't say whether I do or don't, but I don't, but... I think that um, the idea that somebody has a relationship with him, I just think it's like a flawed premise. Nobody okay. has relationships with him. I mean, he's everybody is disposable for him for the most part, with like literally maybe three exceptions. And so, and I don't mean in the media. I mean, like in his life. Um, so I'm not talking about a relationship. You go out to dinner, and no, no, no. You, I know what you mean, but I mean, but what I mean is that like even these things of sort of like when do that he he speaks to people for when they're useful to him. I have had a I've had a very very up and down. Relationship with him um, over several years, uh, but a lot of it is—it's—it's—he's obsessed with the New York Times. Yeah, like, it's really hard for me. To so I'm just curious that. about that because he insults um, you
0: at the same time that I—it—it it feels like he must be talking to you just from my reading of your stories. I don't want to get into. You don't who have who to say to, if you but, are.
1: Um, but he—but what I will say is that he's. He's, like, laser-focused on the Times approval um, because the Times is, you know, New York elite, and it's the elite that looked down on him and his father in his mind um, when they were outer borough builders, and uh, it's a stamp of approval. I mean, uh, to David's point about sort of the the Bruce Wayne narrative that Trump tried to craft for himself— I kept thinking about this, and I'm 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 I am totally avoiding answering your question yes, in case that. you're not clear. Don't worry, I'll um, ask again. In but a one second. of the <laughs> one of the but one of the things that I was thinking about um, that you said that was really interesting was about the whole like the way you get accepted in society is you know give money to charity, and that's definitely true in New York. And there were times when he did do that. He made donations to the Gay Men's Health Crisis. Um, in uh, the 80s because that was socially acceptable and that was seen as the socially good thing to do. But it's when you were talking, I kept thinking about this story about Mike Bloomberg from 2001 when he was running for mayor and it was in the Times and it was one of the best stories I have ever read about him, written in like May of 01 or something. And the lead was Mike Bloomberg showing up at a party in I think the late 80s or 90s, and seeing the invitation list. And remember, Mike Bloomberg is from Boston, and he sees the you know names hosted by you know Ron Lauder and this one and that one. And he turned to whoever he was with, and he said, "How do I get my name on this?" Mm-hmm. And that's how he became a huge philanthropist. But there's two ways to do that. You can actually give your money if you have money to give, and then there's Trump, who has not really given of his money, and of whom there have been huge questions about how much money he actually has. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and anyway, so that's the but because of that, because of how New Yorkers have been written about in the Times, in part that is part of his sort of obsession with the paper with and you. wanting it His first, his first big interview was after he won, was with us. He came and he came to our offices. We didn't go to him.
0: Right, but you have very good sources, and I'm, I'm guessing he's one of, You have, you maintain good sources at the same time that they hate you.
1: I don't talk about sourcing. Mm-hmm. They, All right, they okay. do hate me though. They do. <laughs> to but, be clear, but like one example
2: like of the, the way that he, you know, in public excoriates the media and in private craves their approval was. Right. Remember like four health care bills ago yeah. when the House <laughs> pulled its health care bill That's dramatically? Fine. Trump, at that point, was really into the, you know, I hate the media, I hate the media, the media's terrible. Who did he call? He called Costa and you, right? To tell you, Trump had a piece of news that people didn't know, which was that the House was going to pull its health care bill, and the two people he told were the Washington Post and the New York Times. To
1: be clear, I had asked earlier in the day, and I'm pretty sure Bob did too, um, if we could talk to him. It wasn't as if we were on speed dial, however, he did return the call. Let's finish up
0: talking about that concept of, uh, we haven't gotten to Hillary yet, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, She wrote a whole book about it. uh, You can read her book. Yeah, you can read the book. It's actually a terrific book. Um, It's Angry, which I like. It's an angry book, which is always a good book as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Let's talk about the attacks on the media. Do you think it... I mean, obviously, as a media person, you have to go, of course it matters, but is it more of... What does it feel like right now? Because now it seems to work among the base, because he did it... Did he do it last night again?
1: Uh, Or or did he attack John McCain? I think he he did NFL. He did NFL, John McCain and
0: someone else yeah. i don't know does it does it work do you think it's effective or, or does it make you scared or because i know there's a lot there is a lot of pearl clutching in the media like i can't believe he said that I, at one point there was a there was a whole bunch of reporters i was in in washington and they were talking about this and they kept saying i can't believe he said that i can't believe he said that and i was like for fuck's sake he says it all the time right. believe it like stop like it, you know this sort of being indignant and angry and self-righteous seems to get Nobody anywhere. Essentially,
1: I know it's kind of terrible. It's sort of the um, in 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 broadcast news, um, which like if people have not seen it, you should watch ever. it. holds up holds up so well. The best journalism movie that I've ever seen from the nineteen eighties. And there's a, a scene where one of the uh, one of the new anchors, the pretty boy anchor, uh, has filmed. An inter- he's 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 you know confronting a military general, and he keeps in the clip of him confronting the guy. And Joan Cusack says, I love that you left that in. And Albert Brooks says, yes, yes, let's never forget. We're the real story, not them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so some of the, you know, oh, my God, he's just being so harsh on the media. Like, nobody nobody gives a shit about right. the media being uh, treated poorly. And I think that, you know, is our rating less than Congress in public approvals? No, it's a pretty close. <laughs> I don't know. So Lower than
2: Congress is hard to do. It I mean, is. <laughs> just nine. mathematically. N- maybe. Yeah. But,
1: I mean, I think it's not, it's not far. So... <laughs> I think it works for his base. What I do think is that, to David's point about the public screaming, you know, I hate the media, and then, hello, mm-hmm. is yeah. that um, <clears throat> there are some of his supporters who aren't really in on the joke. Mm-hmm. And what worries me is, is two things. What worries me is people taking individual actions against reporters um, that are potentially dangerous, because there have been an increase in threats, I think, made against people. The other thing that worries me is just there's this creeping crackdown on transparency. Uh, right. And the AP did this story the other day that was really important about you know, state to state, you are seeing an effort to respond less to FOIA requests. Uh, you are seeing information provided less. We know that this administration has scrubbed websites, um, has not answered FOIAs, uh, is not releasing White House visitors' logs, Just and, and I'm not even sure that they're holding on to the visitors' logs. That's what scares me more than right, anything. Right, the
0: lack of transparency, yeah.
1: which is, I think, ultimately what the screaming about the press hides to some extent. Right,
0: the idea of that, and at the same time, it's hard to not do a better job. It's well, see,
1: I, right. I like it better when people aren't talking to me. I'm like, yay.
0: No, I it's better. You know, I I, look,
1: look, it's like I don't. We don't. Right. This isn't about we didn't. We don't need a hug. Like that's right. not what we're in this business for. Um, well, a few but, people, but yeah. go ahead. Well, <laughs> um, I don't. Some people need a hug, but I don't. I also think that like people constantly posting, you know, Instagram videos of themselves asking questions of, here's what I did in the briefing room. Like, I don't think that that helps any of us. I just don't.
2: I, I feel like um, the sort of outrage, I mean, it's important. I think it's a bad thing that he's attacking the media and undermining our credibility. The response from us, to your point, cannot be outrage. It cannot be that we make ourselves the story and the sort of, you know, I feel like the lib- bashing the media. You know how like con- country music stars get like an extra ten, u- 10 years on their life when they go to Branson. Like you're washed <laughs> up and you go to Branson, you can last another ten years. Right. Uh, that's what bashing the media does, right? It when run out of everything, David Clark from uh, the sh- Milwaukee sheriff, people died in his jail. The rest of the county's turned against him. He loses his job. What does he have left? Bashing the media. And I don't. You know, you can you can live for a long time as a conservative uh, activist on that base anger by stoking anger at the media and that's bad also but by us being outraged and take, taking ourselves out of the job that we do to become right. spokespeople yeah. and activists I think that only helps it and incentivizes people to continue doing it I see Completely so agree.
0: bashing the media is Branson
2: or maybe is Vegas really good. for comedians you Vegas know from, like Carrot Top as in, you know, it, just, yeah. it extends your career for a long time <laughs> right. after you've ceased to produce anything useful I, right. I do
0: think that's an insult to Branson <laughs> and I like Branson but, I like Branson um, too I like Branson yeah. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Maybe you're an engineer who moved to the U.S. or a business owner paying suppliers in another country or a freelancer getting paid by a client in a foreign country. You should use TransferWise because when it comes to sending money, banks are stuck in the past. TransferWise is the future. You pay into a local account and TransferWise pays your recipient from an account in their country. Currencies don't need to cross borders and that should matter to you because it lets TransferWise do the things your bank can't. They charge you one low fee and give you a low rate that your cheap Uncle Larry would be proud of. Is your bank slow and hard to use? TransferWise payments take seconds to set up. See how much you can save by going to TransferWise.com or download the app from the Apple Store or Google Play. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer as in, I need to transfer money to another country. Wise spelled W-I-S-E. TransferWise.com. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. Hey there. Hey. Hi. Have <laughs> okay, you miss me? Not even slightly. All right. Every Friday we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, what did we talk about this week? I'm going to let Ann Wojcicki talk about what we talked about this week. And who is Ann
1: Wojcicki, perchance?
2: Ann Wojcicki is the CEO of 23andMe. You might have heard of it. And what does your company do and what did we talk about this week?
1: We had an exciting podcast talking about genetics mm-hmm. and what 23 Me is doing, where we're going, some questions around race, ancestry, and gender, and how we're all a little bit neurotic. Yes, indeed, we are. It was a great
0: discussion. <laughs> Just you guys. It was me. filled with neuroticism. <laughs> Three women, what do you it expect? Was, <laughs> it was a great discussion. We hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. All right, I'm going to finish up. I'm going to get some questions from the audience. We have a mic here, and I really wish you would ask questions. These are really the top reporters covering President Trump. Where are we right now? Healthcare look, where are we right now? Because it seems like like someone, I think Lauren DeLuca in, in Twitter wrote, it feels like years in a week. <laughs> it, it
1: does, but you know something, and I, I said this before, and then I didn't follow up on it because I was too busy avoiding one of your other questions, but the, the, it, things have actually slowed down a little bit because there's only so long you can sustain this kind of, um, you know, light with no actual productivity. Uh, healthcare, I, I don't see how it happens. I think McCain dealt it uh, an almost certain death blow. Uh, I think McCain has decided that he wants to go out his own way, um, from uh, his career in the Senate. So that then puts the focus on tax reform, which is what Trump was telling people back when the first bill got pulled that he wished he had done. And so uh, I think that is likelier to pass because I think there's more incentive to pass it, but not if it's gonna be passed with some of the provisos that they're talking about right now, which is like taxing people's 401Ks. I mean, just, there's all sorts of things that will make, for members of Congress um, in in certain districts, it's gonna make this like a guaranteed loser, if they vote for this, they might as well say goodbye. Um, if you don't see tax reform passed, then I think that you are going to see an increased number of um, congressional retirements and a, a lot more criticism from Republicans of Trump. Of Trump, not more criticism. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I just think that
0: they keep saying that and then don't. But and no, then the they investigation.
1: There, there, there have been a few. Uh, I think the investigations—they're um, not moving. Um, They're not moving together, but they're moving on parallel tracks, and Mueller's office is in pretty close contact with the congressional investigators. Uh, And Mueller now has 17 people working for him. He's... he's, And and they've got a grand jury. I mean, look, they've told... uh, We reported that they told Paul Manafort he's going to be indicted. Now, does that mean he's going to be indicted related to something to the campaign? I have no idea. That actually is not my sense yet. Um, But these, these special counsel investigations... That are open-ended, uh, as the Clintons know very well, are are very fraught. Um, and if anyone has finances that I think are, um, uh, they would not like having somebody poking through. It is Donald Trump. Yeah,
2: I think. Punting. Trump has sort of devolved so much of the actual governing to Congress. I think that's why it's slowed down because Congress is even a a scared, paranoid, trying to ram through at the last minute before a deadline. Congress is slow because there's so many people involved. So I think that's been part of the slowdown is that Trump himself seems to have surrendered so much of the decision-making authority to Congress.
0: And the investigation?
2: And The investigation, I mean, I'm a complete bystander to that. I, I sit near the people that report on it, and I read about it a lot. It seems like it's picking up steam. I mean, Maggie's right that, like, what Mueller, by firing Comey, he, he gave Mueller a license to look at everything Donald Trump Correct. had done since birth. <clears throat> uh, and right. that is what Donald Trump has spent his entire life and some of his charitable donations trying to avoid. I mean, a lot of the big donations he gave uh from his foundation were to the Police Athletic League of New York City, which was the pet charity of the DA. Yes. Uh so he spent a lot of time trying to avoid people looking into his uh into his personal finances and without because he didn't think, God has, has now brought that on himself. Well, yeah,
1: and, and, and to your point, I mean so much of so much of all of this stuff with him is self-inflicted. It is always reverse engineering some other thing. And so he, he has gotten himself into a bind, and it is, you know, in the in the world of Donald Trump, nothing is ever Donald Trump's fault. So it has to be everybody else's fault. Um, but I, I don't think this is going to uh, end happily for some people. How broad that will be, I don't know. Whether there's actually evidence of him having knowledge about Russia, I don't know. Yeah. But um, but he continues to act like somebody who is concerned, which is one of the things that perplexes people in the White House and his own, some of his own lawyers more than anything.
0: Yeah, he does seem unconcerned. Questions from the audience?
2: Um, Steve Amoson, thank you so much for all the work you've done. A question from your lens, how do you interpret the rhetoric of Trump as it relates to North Korea? And the reason I yeah, ask I didn't get to North, is a lot of the other things, it could take a couple decades, but whatever he does will work out, but not a nuclear war. So
1: from what you've observed over the last many years, how would you really interpret all of his rhetoric?
0: It's an excellent question. Sorry, I forgot. It's
1: a great question to which I don't have a great answer, um, unfortunately. I mean, the way I interpret it is that when he came into office, this was the one issue that uh, Obama had told him that he was the most worried about, um, and I think Trump has remained the most worried about it since then. I think it has just kind of lodged in his brain um, in a certain way, and he knows he has no good options. Uh, His advisors have asked him to stop saying things like, Rocket Man, um, which Trump amuses himself with, um, but which don't really have much uh, effect. He and Kim Jong-un are are well-matched on insults, but they're not well-matched on strategy and sort of understanding of each other's own chess game. Um, I don't have a good answer in terms of where this goes. I think that uh, my understanding from some of my colleagues is that H.R. McMaster has actually uh, been more vocal about being aggressive with North Korea than I had anticipated, because I had thought he would be among those who would be, just based on his history, uh, the more stepped back. Um, But you have a bunch of people, basically, in the White House who are trying to execute a pretty careful dance with somebody who likes to just say what's on his mind and likes to sound very Has that
0: changed since Bannon left? Because Bannon was against those encounters, correct?
1: Um, Yes, but I don't think it's changed. I mean, I think that this was always... A attention point between the two do, of them do you miss steve bannon <laughs> um, he's a, a very very entertaining figure um, in certain respect wow entertaining uh, the That's not uh, word i'd pick for the am mm-hmm. yeah uh, i think that look i think that the white house ca- i think that by the end there was a pretty broad feeling that he was a huge source of problems within the white house that um, John Kelly had made clear to him pretty early on, you will not be a survivor on this island and you're going to have to figure out a way to go um, because you are a source of a source of enormous trouble. Um, one of the ironies about Bannon for me, and I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of days, you know, Trump was sort of um, enabled by um, the Republican Party in 2011 and 12. Mitt Romney sought his endorsement. Reince Priebus thought he was wrongly thought he was a major donor, which is why Reince Priebus kept going out. I mean, I will never forget um, one of Reince Priebus's people saying to me in 2011 when I said, Why is Reince not speaking out harder about the birther stuff? This person said, You don't understand. Trump is going to do a major fundraiser. And I said, Yeah, you're right. I don't (laughs) understand that. Um, But um, that is true. So, but Trump basically was like mainstreamed that way. I mean, he was this total fringe person at that point who was screaming about the birther stuff, which Andrew Breitbart, the person whose website, the the website's named for Andrew Breitbart, he rejected Trump very, very forcefully in 2011, rejected the birther stuff. Uh, So this is not what conservatism conservatism is. And uh, Trump got mainstreamed and then the party kind of couldn't get rid of him, even though they sort of wanted to in 2016. Trump mainstreamed Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon was sort of on this fringe with Breitbart, and he brought him into the White House. And so the idea that the White House now feels like they're going to say, don't listen to Bannon. You made him your chief strategist. What did you think was going to happen?
0: Right, anyway. fair point. One more quick question. It's right here.
1: Hi. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning. It's been a great discussion so far. My question is, in consideration of the sort of command that Trump has over the news cycle, if y'all had, if we could fantasize about a time where y'all had the resources and time to focus on another person or another situation, such a good what question. would y'all be interested in that covering? Such a good question. Yeah. What would you cover, David?
2: Uh, you mean within politics or anything? Within, I mean, I think within politics, we are shifting slowly to cover uh, people in Congress, and I think Mitch McConnell is the most fascinating figure. Someone who is like... There was a, Alec McGillis, this person who used to work at the Post, wrote a book about him called The Cynic, right? Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, had been so cynical about using, stoking the sort of Fox News conspiracy theory right to to lift his people into power and thinking that he could then control it. It's like once we get the power, we don't really want to do all that crazy stuff that these people want us to do. We'll then you know, be able to enact tax reform and, and do sort of more mainstream conservative things. And now, he created the monster and it's eating him now. And so McConnell, as cynical as he thought he was, he was wrong. He was idealistic in some ways and to watch his vision for what this Congress could do with Trump as president completely disappear and to think mm-hmm. about what his future is. I think he's a really fascinating figure and would like to read. I mean, he's wow. the opposite of Trump personality-wise and so yeah. sort of hard to write about, but his view of American politics and his own place in it has been completely upended huh. in the last few months.
0: God, I never imagined the word fascinating and Mitch McConnell in the same <laughs> sentence, but go ahead. Where would you cover? Tourism <laughs> in Hawaii? What? <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I'd like to go cover science, honestly. Like, I'd like to go, I'd like to go do some entirely different beat. Entirely different piece. I used to cover the environment,
2: and does have the advantage of the fact that when you call people up and ask them questions, their first instinct is not to lie to you.
1: Oh, nice! They'll tell you about their algae or their mm-hmm. cougar or whatever, right? This.
2: You I know, they're this. happy to tell you what happened to them. You don't exactly. have to like get through those seven layers of lies first.
1: I, I, let me amend my answer. Actually, if I could go cover anything right now, I'd actually like to go cover New York City's uh, political system again because uh, that's where I started and. It's just fundamentally broken. It and, is. It um, is. With it's real and it's also f- fascinating. Too. Yeah, it is. And so that's if I if I had my druthers, my my dream job was chief New York correspondent for the Times forever, um, and it kind of passed me by. But uh, but that's. I'm guessing you could still get it. it, 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 it well, mm-hmm. but it's that's what uh, that's that would be my dream.
0: All right, last question I have. I'm really sorry, we don't have more time. We got to finish. You're on the Twitter a lot, and we were just talking earlier. You really you really do come so close, close to, to that line. Better. And you use it for work. You're not quite as fun on Twitter, but it's good. It's how you use it. But you are very funny, and you come very close. I go way over the line all the time, and I come back, and <laughs> I, I go to. over. Um, and Glenn just left Twitter. Glenn Thrush, your your reporting partner. Why did he leave? Um, I know. I think I know why, because he was getting emotional. There was a lot of what the fucks in I there. Think
1: there were, I think there were... On, on the part of the readers or on his part? No, um, in the tweets I think that you can feel the what the fuck. Yeah, I think um, I think that there were a couple of um, the pr- I think the Twitter. The risk of Twitter is that we all sound like we're screaming at the television, um, and I think part of the problem with covering this presidency is that uh, we spend a lot of time talking about why can't Trump control himself on Twitter, <laughs> um, and so that I know that when I can't control myself on Twitter, it's not a great look. Um, I think that. Uh, I think that Glenn found it was mostly, honestly, it was a time suck. And (laughs) it was not, it's not, the way David uses it is great. And I used to use it that way. And I still do sometimes, like, that is still how I get sources. Sources will DM me. Um, People will see something I I wrote or posted, and they'll try to reach me that way. So for that, it's inherently useful. For sharing reporting that I can't get into the paper, it's incredibly useful. Everything else, eh. so, I mean, I think that Glenn is, um, I think Glenn uh, chose... um, mental clarity over uh, playing the anger video game, which yet, is what Twitter is. And not you? Well, we don't have to do everything the same. Um, <laughs> I, I Look, I still find Twitter useful. I think that it is, use, it is a good platform for pushing out work. It's just that I used to do things like engage in these like idiotic fights, which is a terrible look for reporters. And and then I'd be fighting with like an egg with 27 followers. I'm like, what right. the hell am I doing? Yeah. Um, like I was like fighting with someone once, and somebody DM'd me and said, I'm, "That is literally a bot that you're fighting mm. with." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh. Um, so, you could have called me. I would have told you. That. I should have asked you. Yeah. If, only, hey. if only we had done this a long time ago. Yeah. But, um Stick with Scaramucci. And yeah. Ex- you're good. Exactly. Right, uh, right. But uh, I still think that it's. I still think it's useful. I don't think it's as useful as I used to. I yeah,
0: is. I just had a fight with Scaramucci. I enjoyed it completely, so I have a different point of view. <laughs> it's just... Well, I'm glad. I'm yeah, just going to watch you amusing, and not do my it own. It was fun. I, we yeah. both, I think, enjoyed it, and it was great. Um, very <laughs> last question. I know that we have to absolutely go. Is So are you optimistic or pessimistic about the state of the world right now? David, you first.
2: As I said, I'm naturally an optimist. Yeah. I do feel like domestically the worst sort of fears of what the Trump administration would bring in terms of damage to democracy and sort of gathering of power in one place have not come true. Um, Mostly, I I can't tell you like what the intent behind this was, but mostly through incompetence on the Trump people's parts, the fact that they they began their administration not with things like infrastructure or tax reform, which Democrats would have been scared to oppose them on, but with a Muslim travel Mm -hmm. ban, 15 different versions of healthcare that were unpopular And the by smack
0: at transgender people yeah, yeah,
2: all these things that have shrunk You know, he could have, I think he, had, think he had a moment on January 20th where The Democrats were afraid of him, the Republicans were afraid of him People were willing to give him a chance He could have had an enormous amount of power uh, And he doesn't, because of the way he's used The power that he has And sometimes he still seems to be Treating the president, like, acting like he's a guy At home, yelling at the TV Instead of a guy who's in charge of the country um, so I'm optimistic domestically. I think that like, the, the, the sort of guardrails of democracy have held. The press has gotten stronger, figuring out how to cover Trump. The, the, you know, North Korea is the one thing I don't, I don't know how to value. I don't know whether to be
1: optimistic or pessimistic about that. I mostly just choose to ignore it. My concern is, uh, um, I agree with everything David said, although I think that there is a difference between how he has used political capital versus actual power, and I think that just the the actual power a president can amass in this country is actually pretty limited, um, which was sort of an original intent. Um, My concern is that there is going to be some kind of an unforeseen event or a known unknown, like a terror attack, uh, and how he responds to that, um, given his devotion to trying to keep some form of a travel ban in place um, given uh, how DHS has been incredibly aggressive about deportations, things like that, that I am concerned about domestically. Obviously I'm concerned about North Korea, but you know, who isn't? <laughs> All right.
0: David Fahrenthold of the Washington Post, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, thank you so much for coming thank on to the Code Thanks again to Maggie Haberman and David Fahrenthold for joining me on stage. And thank you to the organizers of the Texas Tribune Festival for hosting us. If you enjoyed this interview and are new to Recode Decode, then you should subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts. And make sure to check out our other podcasts. Peter Kafka hosts Recode Media, where he talks to the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. Lauren Good and I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you'll find audio from Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. And here's some good news. We'll have a bonus episode of Recode Decode for you this Wednesday. Tune in then. Hi, this is Kara Swisher. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Our media industry listeners will already know this, but Recode is owned by Vox Media, and we wanted to include a special shout-out because we're so proud to be associated with them. Vox Media is a fast-growing, modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Its platform is what supports our growth here at Recode, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care most about. For us, that's tech news, reviews, and analysis. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands. There's Vox.com, which goes deeper into explaining the stories defining our world today. On SB Nation, they tell the story beyond the scoreboard. And there's many, many more, including Eater, Curb, Racked, and Polygon. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of depth, and we believe in the best of our audiences. If you aren't going to go deep, where are you going? Fox Media.